Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair.
Good afternoon. I'm Paul McLean, Associate Rector of Calvary Episcopal Church. Welcome to Calvary's 98th Annual Lenten Preaching Series, our gift to our city of Memphis and to the world. Friday is Fish Pudding Day at Calvary's famous waffle shop, which serves up delicious meals on Wednesdays and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and Wednesday evenings from 5.15 to 6.15. Orders must be placed 24 hours in advance on Calvary's website, and all proceeds from the waffle shop go to support outreach ministries here in Memphis. A reminder, too, that Novel Bookstore, a locally owned bookstore in Memphis, has created uh, an in-store book display as well as an, uh, a page on their website that lists and offers opportunities to purchase books from this year's speakers, either in person or online. It is a delight to welcome our Friends of Music guest today, Lee Cagle. Lee is one of our own, and uh, in addition to her talents on the dulcimer, Lee has served as a leader of our joy chapter of the Daughters of the King, and several of our DOK sisters are here to offer moral support for her. Lee has played the mountain dulcimer and other folk instruments since 1988, and I love the way she ends each one of her emails, follow your dulcimer dreams. Lee, is a delight to have you with us today. And Lee especially selected some Irish music today in honor of our preacher. It is a pleasure to introduce Padra Gotuma, a poet and podcast host from Northern Ireland. Padra Gotuma's interests lie in language, violence, and religion. Having grown up in a place that has a long history of all three, yes, Ireland, but also Europe, he finds that language might be the most redeeming of all three of these. In language, there is the possibility of vulnerability, of surprise, of the creative movement towards something as yet unseen. Padraig loves words, words that open up the mind, the heart, and the life. And as we've discovered this week, he does it all in good humor. As Lee plays the dulcimer, let's take these moments to center our hearts and minds to receive Padraig's message.
Hi, friends. Uh, thanks to Scott and Ardell and all at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis for the kindness of being with you again today. For this session, I want to look at a strange text from the second book of Samuel. Um, the first and the second book of Samuel really um, charts the rise and the fall of King David from seeming outsider, or maybe not, to uh, an extraordinary rise and a catastrophic fall. What do we call him? King David, boy king with a wonder harp, bringer down of giants, subject and dethroner of a weak king, soldier who slayed tens of thousands, abductor of Bathsheba, singer in the house of the Lord, heartbroken friend for the son of his enemy, father betrayed by his son, tender as the night, terrible as the dawn, Man after the heart of God, man after the hearts of his enemies. So here's the reading from the second book of Samuel, and it's in chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. David said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth and the five sons of Merab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzillai the Mahotholite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself from the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. 
when David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the people of Jabeth Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them up on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. He brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who had been impaled. They buried the bones of Saul and of his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of his father Kish. And they did all that the king commanded. After that, God heeded supplications for the land. So there's a large cast of characters in this dramatic text. The main ones, David, the king, and Saul, the previous king, a weak man who had been married to two wives, the first of whom was Ahinoam and the second of whom was Rizpah. And there's an event, a famine, and David is trying to figure out what to do about the famine. And his question seems to be, what caused it? In the first year, he'd asked the people, are there idolaters among you? The second year, transgressors? The third year, are there men among you who boast of giving, but you don't give? All of these, answers, all of these questions are answered in the negative. So David went to find some information. And the oracle or the priest blamed the fact that there had been war made on the Gibeonites. And really, the notion of causation that a famine grips a land because of a former leader's wrongdoing is something to query. It's a strange thing to find in First and Second Samuel. This kind of causation doesn't really appear elsewhere. Chapter 21 to 24 of Second Samuel are kind of seen as a coda to the rest of the texts. So I wonder... Did the oracle tell the king something that the king wanted to hear? Or did the oracle tell the king something that the king needed to hear? Was he a spin doctor? Or a brave one? I don't know. Anyway, so King David contacts the Gibeonites. And um, King David asks them to come for a parley. Saul had treated the Gibeonites terribly, close to genocide, the way that they talk about it. There seems to be no historical record of that, but there's hints of it at various times. David had no love for Saul, but something important to say is that David, the new king, loved the son of Saul, Jonathan. Some say that David and Jonathan were lovers. Others say they weren't. What's clear is that they loved each other. Your love was more wondrous to me than the love of women, is what David said, lamenting the death of Jonathan. And Jonathan and Saul had died in battle. So when the, Gibe when the Gibeonites come to negotiate, it's really best to visualise um, Tony Soprano. David says to them, what shall I do for you? How can I make an offering that you may bless us? And the Gibeonites say, well, 
It's not a matter of money, really. And neither is it a question of us saying who lives or dies where. So everybody knows what everybody's hearing. Who do you want killed is what's on David's mind. And they say, well, you didn't like Saul. Neither did we. He was an abomination to us in the wars. He had two wives, we understand. So from among the male descendants of these wives, give us some bodies. Um, Seven, that nice number of perfection. And they say what they're going to do. We'll impale them in Gibeon on the mountain of God. David says, done. Now there were at least eight male descendants. So David had to choose seven. And he chose seven, sparing the life of his best friend's son, of Jonathan's son. And the Gibeonites, once they had the bodies, or they weren't bodies, they were the living people, they said, oh, we said we'd impale them on the mountain of God at Gibeon, didn't we? Maybe we'll impale them um, in the city of that old bastard king. No, they don't, and they probably wouldn't have gotten away with it. But it's this taunting way that's happening amongst these people for whom these kinds of um, theatres of revenge are something to play with in terms of the atrocity of location and place and the desacralizing of place and body. All those seven die together. The sins of the father are heaped on the heads of the innocent offspring. What age were they? What futures did they have? And what did they think of their forefather? What lamentations went up for them? The famine went on. This is no way to end a famine. Did David take pleasure in doing this? Did he want to assert a certain kind of power or manliness by destroying almost everything of his enemy? It's often read that between David and Saul a great jealousy existed and it's usually portrayed that it came from Saul. You know, the song said, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. So the imagination really is that Saul's jealous. And psychoanalysts tell us that jealousy is where a person says, I want to be included in getting what you're getting. I feel left out. But envy is, I want to destroy you. So... I think David was filled with a certain kind of envy, even after Saul was dead, perhaps wanting to destroy the male bloodline of his former enemy. And the Gibeonites' bloodthirst was convenient because he didn't object. Anyway, the seven were impaled and exposed and not buried at the start of April, the barley harvest. No burial rites, no prayers, No place to visit and mourn, no honour, just disgrace. And then in comes Rizpah. And Rizpah had been married to that old King Saul. She was the second wife, not as high-ranking as the first. Sometimes she's um, described as a concubine, but the biblical scholar Dr. Will Gaffney says that that's a really poor translation. Second wife is how she translates the, the, the place of Rizpah within this monarchical arrangement. At no point does Rizba speak at any point in the text, but what she does is louder than words. Um, 
the impaling and the desecrating of these seven men had happened at the beginning of the barley harvest around April. And it says that she stayed until the rain fell on them from the heavens till about October, six months. She took some cloth and she put it round herself. The verb used for stretch here is usually used for tents, so it's likely that she made a kind of a lean-to to shelter from the sun under. And it says that during that time she kept the birds of the air away from the bodies and then during the day, she did that during the day and she kept the wild animals away at night. Day and night, six months. To kill like this is a desecration. And to collude like this in the setting up of a killing is a desecration. And to blame the children for the sins of the parents is a desecration. And to display the bodies like this is a desecration, a torture. To display the bodies like this is a torture too for all who loved these men. Of course there's no causation as to the reason why the famine was there in terms of that. But if there was this kind of behaviour would have warranted it. From the bloodthirst for revenge from the Gibeonites and for the weak collusion from David. So news reaches David that Rizpah, who's the widow of the hated King Saul, and possibly she had been taken as one of David, David's wives after Saul was dead, news reaches him what Rizpah is doing. And it isn't just that David had allowed this desecration to happen it's also that we realise that David hadn't even rescued the body of Jonathan, a man he'd loved more than he'd loved anyone else in his life from the hands of his enemies. He hadn't treated the corpse of King Saul, a king he hated, with dignity, but he hadn't even treated his closest friend with dignity. So what was this? This whole story, is this whole story some kind of metaphor for trying to face David with the fact that he needed to do his duty to the king he didn't like, but the son of the king who he loved. It's a terrible metaphor, if so. But if so, it does show us what um, toxicity looked like for David, where you don't even treat those you love with love, where your integrity leaves you and where you collude in atrocity. I don't think lots of us get to that stage don't think lots of us have that kind of power where we can cause such devastation with our chaos. Um, but here the writers show that David as king, they show him as a man who can't cope with his own chaos. And rather than only punishing himself, he becomes complicit in spreading chaos all around him through the throne of his power. And Rizpah's actions change him. David sees in Rizpah that she lives in honour amidst all the wreck of the dishonour that his dishonour has done. David goes and gets the bones of Saul, the king he didn't like, and Jonathan, the son of Saul, whom he loved, and the remains of Saul and Jonathan, as well as the remains of the seven men whose murder he's been complicit in, and he buries them. It took all of this to bring David to honour. And I think... This is the strange message of this text. It's saying that what happened for David, he didn't grieve, he turned poisonous, and the earth stopped giving in order to get his attention. In a way, he's like Demeter lamenting for Persephone. The earth goes dead. But he's definitely not like her because he is colluding with murders all along. 
the Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone implies um, that the earth goes into mourning with the mourning of Demeter because her daughter has to go into the underworld for six months a year down to Hades with Hades. But the Hebrew narrative here shows that um, wars happen when leaders can't pay attention to their own chaos, when they are caught up in the destructive power of listening to their own envy without wisdom, and that wars are played out on the bodies of people they hate and on the families of the people they hate. So this, in a certain sense, is a message to people who carry power. Pay attention to your private chaos, the text is saying, because death has been committed by people who won't face their failures. And so much of the narratives of First and Second Samuel paint the picture of who is David. I gave that kind of um, list of some names that I give to David at the start. And it's a question throughout First and Second Samuel that's narrated in sometimes confusing parallel narratives. Sometimes he's an innocent with a harp. And then the next chapter, he's wrestling wolves or lions or tigers. or Sometimes he's loyal to Saul. And other times it looks like he's always been plotting to dethrone him. And one of the questions that we're often brought with is, um, how would you narrate the story of David? And again, quoting from the work of Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, she says that if you think of the family of Saul and think about how they would have narrated the story of the impact of David, the man after God's heart, on their lives, you could look at it through these stories. You know, one of Saul's daughter had a broken engagement with David. The other had a broken marriage with him. The son had an intimate relationship with him and died in a war started by these kings. And then Saul, the focus of all this male energy and envy, seems to go mad before he dies in the same war as Jonathan. And then one of the daughters of Saul has five sons who were murdered by David in some kind of blood revenge. And the second wife of David has two sons mur murdered by David and some kind of blood revenge as well. So how would they tell the story of the life of the king who was the man after God's heart? Was David hunting God's heart? <laughs> what would he have done with the heart of God if he'd caught it? I do hope that David was after God's heart because um, he needed it. Um, he needed a new one. And I think this is what Rizpah did for him and to him. Not as an act of charity or pity, but one of defiance, I think. She showed him what leadership looks like. What it looks like, what it is, what it costs. Rizpah was many things, um, a grieving mother and a victim of awful abuse of power. Um, she was the subject of a king turned tyrant. She was an agitator for change, a demonstrator of revolution. And she was a challenge in the face of cowardice. Rizpah's name is a blessing and it is also a call to substantive and systemic change. A revolution, a volta, a turn. As I think of Rizpah, I think about who is Rizpah today. And the answer is many. Um, the person that has come to mind most is Aisha Evans, the woman who travelled to Louisiana in 2016 to protest the shooting by police of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Um, and while taking part in the protest in Baton Rouge, um, Aisha Evans was photographed standing in the middle of the road in a poise filled with power and challenge and call for justice and revolution. 
and she was being filmed. She was photographed standing like that just as she was about to be arrested by three armed guards who were rushing towards her. It became a very famous photograph. So she was standing, a black woman, arms in front of her, wearing sandals and a light summer dress, and the guards were rushing towards her, wearing armaments and protective gear. She was arrested and subject to humiliations. And that year, 2016, in an article in The Guardian, Aisha Evans wrote, When the armoured officers rushed at me, I had no fear. I wasn't afraid. I was just wondering, how do these people sleep at night? They put me in a van and drove me away. This is her still writing. Only later, only hours later, did someone explain to me that I was arrested for obstructing a highway. In that same article in The Guardian, she goes on to write, I have a six-year-old son, Justin, and I fear more for his life than I do for my own. How should I raise him? To be afraid? To keep his head down and not get in trouble? To not look the police in the eye because they might mess with him? Or do I raise him in strength to embrace his colour, to know his rights and to know that he's not breaking the law or doing anything unjust, that he's going to be fine and that no one should take away any of his civil liberties. Still writing, she writes, parents have a responsibility to wake the hell up and realise what's going on. She told her son Justin that she'd gotten arrested, even though at the time that she was writing that article in The Guardian, she says that he hadn't seen the picture. And he had said to her, why, I thought only bad people get arrested. And she says she was stumped for a bit and then she said to him, you know what, that's not always the case. <laughs> Educate her. Aisha Evans writes about systemic racism and she's critical of the Clinton and Obama administrations as setting the ground for some of the laws about what happened during the Trump administration. Um, Tracy K. Smith, um, who was then Poet Laureate of the US, wrote about Aisha Evans in her book Wade in the Water, um, a poetry book, which was published by Grey Wolf in 2018. And here's the poem called Unrest in Baton Rouge. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood. Blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language few practice, but all or near all speak. Even the men in black armour, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys, what else are they so buffered against if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat? We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat. Love, the heart sliced open. Gutted, clean, love, naked almost in the everlasting street, skirt lifted by a different kind of breeze. Two years after she wrote that article in The Guardian, so in 2018, Aisha Evans um, writes in the Huff Post, and she comments about how some folks had, at the initial outset, wanted to see her who, as someone who fit particularly into the image about what a peaceful protester looks like and asked about how she um, thinks she'll be remembered. She says, 
I think I'll be remembered as a peaceful protester who saw injustice going on and took a stand. And then she says this. I'd like to be remembered as a revolutionary. And her name is Aisha Evans and she is a blessing. She continues to issue calls for systemic change, for revolution, a volta, a turn. Aisha Evans and this character of Rizpa coming to us through this text, both saying to leaders, look at what courage looks like in public. Change. Thank you, Padraig, for that thoughtful and challenging message and for breaking open scripture for us in new ways this week. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.